Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody at home. How many people joining for the first time tonight? Welcome and welcome to anybody tuning in on Zoom for the first time. I'd like to begin class by asking you to talk to each other before I lead the meditation and introduce the topic. In service of um, Buddhism teaches that we're doing something that is radical, that is rare, that is uncommon. And, uh, you know, just simply learning to be kind and generous and loving is unfortunately uncommon in this world, learning to be mindful, to train our minds. And that it's uh, necessary, it's important and necessary to build community, to develop relationships, friendships, connections with other people who are also trying to wake up and um, develop wisdom. So we do that by uh, talking to each other in the beginning so you start getting to know each other. And even if you're just dropping in once, you at least get a little connection other than just you know sitting and listening. And so tonight's uh, topic, I'll give you a little icebreaker topic, which is, um, and this is, you can reflect on this for a moment before you talk to each other about it. Three weeks ago, uh, or, or two weeks ago, I spoke about the topic was death, and we discussed our relationship to death and impermanence and loss. And last week, we, the topic was sex, and we talked about our relationship to sex and sexuality and love and attachment and and so i thought i'd stick with the practical uh theme that i've been on death and sex and it made sense tonight that we should talk about money the other you know core source of suffering in our lives so often joy and sorrow around finances around money around attachment and fear and worry and clinging generosity all of the associated stuff around our relationship to money and i'll discuss you know some of the buddha's teaching some of my own experience and uh, what i take away from buddhism in, in relationship to money and but before that what's your relationship with money like how much of your suffering comes from your finances just reflecting for a little bit, like how often are you worrying about money, thinking about money? I think I said in the sex talk last week that I saw sometime, I think in my 40s, once I had children, that um, earlier, you know, in my meditative experience, often my mind would think about sex. I'd be on retreat and I'd be thinking about sex. And then at some point in my 40s, I think once I became a parent, uh, my mind started thinking about money instead of sex. And I just noticed, like, this is weird. 
I used to, you know, the, the kind of craving pleasure kind of part of my mind used to really be, you know, interested in sex. And now it's more interested in like, hmm, do I have enough money to raise these kids? And, uh, and that shift that, that happened. So what's your current relationship to money? And if you want to say something about it as you talk to each other, uh, is it informed by Buddhism? How does Buddhism, what you know about it so far, inform your relationship to money, if at all? Um, so find two or three people that you don't know yet, introduce yourself, make, you know, connect with some new people. Uh, at home, I'm going to put you into these breakout rooms and discuss money for a little bit before we meditate. Same bad joke as last week. Now we're going to meditate. Don't think about money. <laughs> We'll have some discussion about Buddhist perspectives on relationship to money after we meditate, but find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. Make any adjustments necessary. And settle into this relaxed, upright posture allowing our eyes to be closed, body coming into a relative stillness, setting the intention to maintain the posture, even if we get uncomfortable to sit with whatever sensations come up. And establishing mindfulness, which is bringing our full awareness to our present time experience here and now. Present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness of the body sitting, breathing, of whatever is present in our minds. Maybe this conversation about money that we began with, stirring up our thoughts, worries, ideas. As we establish present time awareness, there is six areas that we can become aware of the physical sensations the sense doors of hearing seeing smelling tasting and then the realm of thought and emotion the mind states the six sense doors that are to be received in non-judgmental awareness, not judging what our mind is doing, not judging what the body is experiencing. Bringing an attitude 
of kindness and intentional friendliness, acceptance, kindness to yourself, to your experience. The intention to be kind, patient, tolerant, compassionate. As we train the heart and mind to see clearly, the nature of the mind, the body. Traditionally, we begin by focusing our attention on the sensations of the breath, mindfulness of breathing. Non-judgmental, kind awareness of the breath coming and going. In order to be fully present with the breath, we have to disengage our awareness from the thinking mind, direct our awareness to the feeling body. Buddha said something like breathing in, one knows I breathe in. Breathing out, one knows I breathe out. So what is it in your direct experience that informs you that the breath is coming or going? How do you know? What sensations are associated with breathing in? What sensations are associated with breathing out? Trying to pay that kind of close interest, investigation, of the breath.
finding the balanced effort of connecting and sustaining with the body breathing, with the humility that it's normal that the attention gets drawn back into thinking, trying to be non-judgmental about this process of getting lost in thought, returning to the breath, over and over, try to bring that attitude of kindness as you return and attempt to concentrate the attention on the breath.
This first instruction of mindfulness of the breath is a core skill, learning to disengage from the mind, experience the body. The Buddha's instructions expand. We can't ignore the mind forever to include all of the sense doors, the full present time reality. All of the sensations in the body, the emotions felt in the belly and heart, throat, wherever you physically experience emotions. The sense doors, sound, smell, taste, seeing, and all of the mental and emotional activity of the brain. Present time, non-judgmental, kind awareness of our whole being. No such thing as a distraction, even the thoughts that are happening here and now. Sounds happening here and now. Turning towards and receiving in kind awareness. The emotions that arise, the thoughts that come and go, Rather than a narrow focus on the breath, a more open awareness of the impermanent nature of sensation and emotion and thought, the arising and passing.
the second level of mindfulness is the investigation of a relationship to pleasure and pain and neutrality. As you scan your awareness through the present experience, what do you perceive as pleasant? What feels good, pleasurable in this moment? Pleasant thoughts, pleasant sensations, pleasant emotions or sounds. Often easier to identify what is unpleasant our attention, our instinctual habit drawn towards what's painful, unpleasant thoughts, emotions, or sensations. How much of the experience is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Certain parts of the body uncomfortable, probably most of the body fairly neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant.
ultimately mindfulness is teaching us to meet our own pain with compassion, to turn towards it, to feel it, to soften into it, to accept it, to learn to care about it, directly seeing how when we meet pain with anger or fear, resistance, it makes it worse, creating that layer of suffering on top of the unpleasantness. Mindfulness also teaching us to let go of the habitual tendency to cling to the pleasant. Allow the impermanent reality to be as it is. Beginning to meet the pleasant with non-attached appreciation.
the last couple minutes of the sitting, if you care to, saying the loving kindness phrases first to yourself. May I be happy just as I am. May I learn to be at ease with my heart, my mind, my body, my finances. May I learn to be at ease. May I be free from suffering, the suffering of clinging, of craving of aversion, of self-centeredness, all of the causes of human suffering, unhappiness, stress. May I be free from these experiences of suffering about what's happening. May I be happy, may I be at ease, may I be free to yourself and then extending this wish to those three or four people that you spoke with at the beginning, sending loving kindness, may you be happy just as you are, may you be at ease, may you be free from suffering. Extending this loving kindness to the whole Sangha, everybody practicing together tonight. Here in the room, all over the country out there, tuning in on Zoom. Extending loving kindness to each other, the wish for ease, well being, freedom. broadening it in all directions to include all of your loved ones, friends, family, our parents, our children,
outward in all directions with all living beings. May all beings in existence know happiness. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. So I'll start with uh, some questions for you to reflect on. Uh, the first one I already asked a little bit as we went into the small groups, uh, but reflect for a moment. You know, some of, some people maybe are brand new to Buddhism and just checking it out. Some of you have been practicing for decades um, or somewhere in between, a couple years, many years. But um, so far, what has Buddhism taught you about money? Just reflecting on it. What are you, what are you learning about your relationship to money from your meditation practice, from the Buddha's teachings, from... Is that even part of your awareness in relationship to money? And, and you know, hopefully, hopefully it is. It may or may not be, but um, the way that I see Buddhism is that it's our whole life. It's not our meditation practice as a sort of like thing that we do and then there's our worldly life. It's our whole life the Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering is about every aspect of our life. It's about sexuality and finances and it's all relational. All of Buddhism, the way that I think about it is uh, how do we relate to our own, as we did in the meditation, to our own um, sensations and our own thoughts and our own emotions? How do we relate to each other? How do we relate to money? How do we relate to relationships? How do we relate to the world, being in the world in a wise way? So money is a central 
uh, aspect of our lives, probably, maybe some of you, there might be some, some people who, uh, it's not a thing, but probably not. <laughs> uh, even if you have uh, so much abundance that you don't have to worry about it, it's still a thing in our lives, even abundance is a thing. Of, um... So anyways, first reflection, and I'll reflect a little bit on my own experience with it. Um, second question, and this, this is actually helpful to me. I found it very useful to identify, because there's that, uh, how much awareness do we have about our relationship to money, and where did it come from? So the first part is how much of it is inspired by Buddhism. Uh, and the reality is it's probably mostly inspired by our families, mostly conditioned by how we were raised. Right? <laughs> so uh, quick question for you to reflect on. What did your mom teach you about money? Just take a moment to reflect. What did mom teach me about money? Some of that maybe was um, explicit with, you know, whether or not you got allowance, how, you know, all of the kind of direct communication that mom said to you about money, like, we can't afford that, or we need to save or uh, invest, or, <laughs> you know, what was, what was the message? Some of it, you know, when I looked at this, and um, my mom's actually here, so I have to tell the truth. Um, some of this is not just like um, explicit communication, but what did we learn by watching? What was the message of, uh, I'm going to ask about dad in a moment, <laughs> but, you know, first about mom, what was the message that we got from watching our mom? When you reflect on your mom's relationship to money that they passed on to you consciously or unconsciously. And, and what about dad? What did dad teach you? about money maybe sat you down and gave you some maybe not but we get it we get a uh, communication by how our parents related to money and how much of that uh did we take on how much are we kind of oh yeah i've got that and i and then you look back and you're like well, I feel this way. And they're like, oh, totally got it from my parents. <laughs> I didn't even, or did you go the other way? Be like, oh no, they were so weird in that way about money. I went the other way. They were so generous that I got tight or they were so tight that I became irresponsible. <laughs> you know, what? how much of our relationship to money comes from our parents. And then my sense is we show up to the Dharma with our conditioning from the world and living in a capitalist, unbridled capitalism society. So there's, you know, our parents and then there's the world. 
I said this about, did you get some reflections on mom and dad and Buddhism? And one of the things from, I said this about Buddhism last week too, and I love Buddhism, <laughs> but I also sometimes, sometimes I feel like oh, I'm talking shit about my own tradition. Um, I do feel like it's a dilemma to be a householder Buddhist in a lineage, like for me, like there's, you know, Buddhism has been around for 2,600 years um, and it's taken lots of different forms and it's changed so much as it's left India and gone through Southeast Asia and North into Tibet and Korea and China and Japan and Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, it's changed, you know, and Theravadan Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma, and it's changed so much over the centuries. But for whatever reason, and I'm very much conditioned uh, and inspired by uh, Thai Buddhism and, and Burmese Buddhism, but also influenced by the Tibetan and the Zen tradition, but mostly Southeast Asian Theravadan Buddhism. But for me, I mostly go back to, I think of the Buddha, I think of Siddhartha Gautama, not, not so much Buddhism, but the Buddha. And I, I feel, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but I always feel this like a little bit of um, conflict or a dilemma of being a householder that's involved with money and sex and relational uh, world uh, when my model for enlightenment is a celibate renunciate. You know, the Buddha, and when we're talking about money, the Buddha who the story, some of it's myth, some of it's true, but the story of the Buddha is that he was a, a prince, powerful, wealthy uh, heir to a kingdom, and that he walked away from it. And he said, I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of money and power, and, and uh, I see it as a dead end that worldly materialism as, as a dead end to be avoided. So, you know, kind of makes sense, but then also, hey, what, what about us <laughs> who are in the world and are saying like, well, I'm not, I'm not walking away from shit. <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to give up my inheritance. I mean, I personally don't have any, but I wouldn't even if I did. For sure, like this, uh, I want to be in the world. I want to be in relationships, sexual, financial. I want to be part of this thing. I'm not interested in monasticism. I chose the worldly householder path. But does it feel like a dilemma for you? And does it create any internal conflict? I know for me it does because uh, it gives me the conditioning that renouncing money is more wise and more spiritual than engaging with it. And my favorite teachers are monks. And it creates an inner conflict for me because I kind of think they're you know, you know, wiser than we are. And I don't want to think that. I want to think that this is an equally viable way to live. But that conditioning, you know, when I asked you, how does Buddhism... Um, influence your relationship to money I, I i'll come around to some positive but i want to start with acknowledging that in some ways it creates a dilemma for me it doesn't offer clear 
uh, support for the level of materialism that I choose to engage in and creates a little bit of judgment for me. Does that happen for you? A little bit of like, eh, if I was more spiritual, maybe I wouldn't want a new car. There's that very common, uh, I don't know if it's Western New Age idea that if you're spiritual, you should live very humbly and simply and non-materialistic. Is that in your conditioning? Eh, you know, really, you should really be, basically, you should be poor if you want to be spiritual. I mean, we're in Los Angeles, so here, you know, we've reframed it. It's been reframed by the new age move. But even like, I saw some of my Western Buddhist householder teachers who are very wealthy pretending like they're not very wealthy from my mind, you know, like com committed to driving a Toyota just because that's what spiritual people do. The spiritual, the Toyota Prius is the spiritual. <laughs> now, you know, now maybe it's um, a Tesla or something, but Teslas are for the wealthy. And how many, uh, you know, I've seen this a lot and, you know, it conditioned me. Even my father was a famous spiritual teacher. And I was asking you earlier, what did your parents teach you? Uh, my meditation teacher father, didn't talk about money with me and taught me intentionally or unintentionally like even when i tried to talk with him about it, he just was like we don't talk about money that's not spiritual we're in this for service we're in this for and i was like yeah but like okay but what about paying the bills what about the reality of raising children what about the reality of you know, buying a home or investing or, you know, these kind of reality financial things. And my father was just like, we don't talk about it. Um, and so that gave me a conditioning, another conditioning that like, oh, money's not spiritual. There's something about it that's shameful or something. My father also had this, he's a generous person. Both my parents gave me this conditioning, this sort of like um, a lot of confidence about money. My dad was like, it's not, it'll, it'll, we'll be taken care of. Um, and my mom likes to say, you know, your dad's the kind of guy that'll spend his last 20 bucks on sushi. With this sort of like, the Dharma will provide. <laughs> and I totally have that conditioning. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I'm not very good at saving, investing. Well, but I'll be, a, you know, it'll, the Dharma will provide <laughs> such a terrible uh, investment strategy. <laughs> and, you know, the reality for my dad, who wrote all of these books and was doing workshops with hundreds, sometimes over a thousand people would show up to his things like uh he died broke you know like had to uh ramdas actually had to do a fundraiser for my parents at the end of their life they had nothing 
because they wouldn't breathe into reality that actually in this world we have to uh, pay attention to money and this sort of spiritual flaky everything will be provided for is great until you want to retire <laughs> until you don't want to go out and, and do the lectures or uh you know kind of live month to month based on the activities of of your own livelihood there's a you know in the eightfold path how you know so part of the question is how does the buddha address it his his model is renunciation and um no money the buddha renounces everything but then he lives on the generosity of others you know and so there's this central buddhist teaching be generous especially for us householders give your money to the monks feed them build the monasteries meditation centers like this worthy give money if you're going to participate in the uh, material world be very generous with it and maybe that's another question open uh, how generous are you how much do you give what percentage of your livelihood do you share how sent you know it's said that i feel like generosity is on some level a different topic than our relationship to money but it's of course it's part of our relationship to money and um, it's said that often the teachings in traditional buddhism theravadan buddhism at least begin with the importance of generosity breaking our clinging by giving and not that you have to give a lot but just the practice of giving making sure that there's some level of generosity engaged in our life on a one of the examples that's given is said if we knew the importance of generosity we wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing some of our food with someone who was hungry making it that kind of central daily acts of service daily acts of generosity being engaged in that way i know in some uh somebody at one point early on in my teaching 25 years ago or something like that somebody gave me a hundred bucks and i was like whoa that, that was like a big general you know it was like a, nobody had ever given me a hundred dollars just for you know i was teaching a class and he's like here's a hundred bucks he's like i'm practicing tithing and i was like i don't even know what that is <laughs> and apparently tithing in um maybe i think in, jewish tradition but maybe it's also part of some of the christian traditions is the the practice of giving 10 percent of your income every year to spiritual religious organizations 10 percent it's an interesting reflection i have my i'm skeptical i'm always skeptical about these sort of religious norms and you know priestcraft and and of kind of like trying to get the money from the people but you know when i reflect on it myself of like oh i want to be that kind of generous i certainly don't want to belong to any church organization that says you have to give us 10 percent of your income personally i you know um 
but I like the idea for myself of like, oh, that's a good reflection. How much money am I making and how much am I sharing? How much am I giving? What's my relation? How attached am I? And when we have that mentality that's like, well, I don't even have enough to give. When will I, what's enough? What's, what's that level of having enough money that you have extra? And how that changes over the lifetime. Can you remember being young when you got your first good job and you're like making 20 bucks an hour, fucking rich, getting paychecks. <laughs> and then after a while, like, oh, I can't, this is not enough. <laughs> you know, and then, oh, I need, you know, I need to make more. I need to make more. And, you know, and you know, find yourself these days living in Los Angeles, you're like, wow, you, you need over a million dollars to buy a house, especially on this side of town. But pretty much you're like, it's like, wow, you have to really make a lot of money to afford to live in this part of, you know, some of you are, some of, some of our friends are more intelligent than us and live in affordable <laughs> parts of the country. Um, <laughs> So there's a, um, a famous story in the time of the Buddha where he says um, a very wealthy merchant. Uh, I believe that this is Anatta Pindaka, and he's in a lot of the life of the Buddha because he's one of the um, very successful business people who ends up um, supporting the Buddha and the Sangha quite a bit. I mean, he, there's a, a place in the um, in a lot of stories about Anatta Pindaka's park, and it's this kind of uh, park, monastery park that he has donated to the Sangha, that he's given to the Buddha and the Sangha. And, and uh, he comes to the Buddha at one point, and here's translation, something, something like this, it's in the sutta, something like this. It says, a rich man once said to the Buddha, I see that you are the awakened one, and I would like to open my mind to you and to ask your advice. My life is full of work and having made a great deal of money, I'm surrounded by cares. I employ many people who depend on me to be successful. However, I enjoy my work and like working hard, but having heard your followers talk of the happiness of the renunciate's life and seeing you as one who gave up a kingdom in order to become a homeless wanderer and find the truth, I wonder if I should do the same. Right, this dilemma that sometimes we get into, like, oh, should I renounce the world? So this conversation, and I wonder if I should do the same. I long to be a blessing to my people. Should I give up everything to find the truth? And the Buddha replied, the happiness of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness, generosity. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than to let it poison your heart. Ooh. If you cling to your, like all of us, we need to just throw it away. We have the humility to be like, I totally cling to it. Okay, let's just get out the trash bags. It's poisoning my heart. If you cling to your wealth, it is better to throw it away than to let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling to it, but use it wisely, 
then you will be a blessing to people. I feel like this is one of the most clear teachings from the Buddha about how to relate to money. If we don't cling to it, but use it wisely, some ability to be generous, some ability to live a healthy, happy life. It is not wealth and power that enslave people, but the clinging to wealth and power. So, of course, Buddhism always comes back to the core. It's not what's happening, it's how we're relating to what's happening. It's not money. It's our relate, even the way I was asking the question all night. What is our relationship to it? Because it's not money's fault. It's how we're relating to it. It's not wealth and power that enslave people. It's clinging. It's craving. The Buddha goes on to say, my teaching does not require anyone to become homeless or to resign the world unless they want to. But it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are a permanent self and to act with integrity while giving up craving for pleasure. So that's like, this is such a deep, succinct summation of the Buddha's teaching. Requires everyone to free ourselves from the illusion that we are a permanent self, from that self-centeredness, the way that we believe the mind, the body to be who we are, or even this idea that there's some sort of permanent soul. He says, it, you know, you have to let go of that to you know, have the liberation that he's talking about, that delusion of permanence. To act with integrity, to act with integrity is to not kill, to not lie, to not steal to be careful with our sexual energy, to not cause harm, sexual misconduct. And giving up craving for pleasure. Now, this is the traditional way to think about it, giving up craving for pleasure. And I don't know if I'm a complete heretic or not, but my own sense is that it's not so much that we're going to get rid of craving, but that we can so drastically change our relationship to the craving mind that we're no longer obeying it. Because sometimes, you know, Buddhism can set up this uh, expectation that you will no longer have desire, that you'll no longer have craving, that you'll no longer want. I'm not so sure that that's the way it works personally. But I am convinced that what mindfulness does, what non-attachment does, what developing wisdom does is change our relationship to the craving body, to the craving mind, to learn to relate to it rather than from it, rather than believing it, rather than obeying it, having some choice. Is this a healthy sense desire or an unhealthy one? Is this an appropriate craving to satisfy? or an inappropriate one, rather than this idea that eventually you'll get to the place where you have no craving at all. And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it's my limited, uh, limited uh, development. It is said traditionally that you'll get to the place, that the enlightened beings get to the place where there is no craving. 
there's uh, four different levels of enlightenment. The highest level of enlightenment, I heard this recently when I was on retreat this a few months ago. The last thing to go for the fully enlightened being to become an arahant, a Buddha, a fully awakened Buddha, is that uh, feeling that we all have that says, um, I'll be happier when I get there. I'll be happier somewhere other than right here, right now. That I, grass is greener feeling that uh, there's a destination, that that's the last thing to go. That feeling that happiness exists somewhere other than right in this moment. And you know how pervasive is that in our consciousness? That's like, even when this is pretty good, this is pretty fucking good but it could be better there's probably a bit more happiness around the corner did i finish that okay i didn't i went on a tangent to act with integrity while giving up craving for pleasure and whatever people do whether in the world or as a renunciate let them put their whole heart into it. I like that, you know, like uh, in the Eightfold Path, it talks about right livelihood. And for those of us who are engaged in the world, put your whole heart into it, rather than thinking like, well, meditation's my real spiritual activity, and then work is just a burden to pay the bills. To actually show up to work as a mindfulness practice, put your whole heart into your career, into your livelihood, as a practice of awareness, as a practice of an opportunity to be present with the pleasant and unpleasant duties that you perform in your daily life. Put your whole heart into it. Let them be committed and energetic. And if they have to struggle, let them do it without envy or hatred. Let them do it without envy or hatred. I had a wonderful conversation earlier with a friend who was talking about uh, how much they were suffering about the comparing mind and the envy and the jealousy and how much, how much their mind was just really getting them. Uh, and it's so common. It's just a natural part of the human mind to look you know, and compare and judge and, and then feel like, oh, like I want what they have not in a you know, healthy, inspired way, but in a materialistic, uh, oh, I'm suffering because I don't have what they have. So this encouragement, let, it, let us do it without envy or hatred. Let them live not a life of self, but a life of truth. And in that way, happiness will enter their hearts. Freeing ourselves from that self-centered, natural, not your fault tendency of life and living a life of truth, a life of kindness, a life of generosity, of love and forgiveness, and non-comparing mind, you know, just keep the focus on, well, this is my reality right now, rather than what everyone else is up to. What's my reality?
So one of those important teachings for us that says we can be in the world. We don't have to be a recluse, a renunciate, a monastic. And have the happiness that is available, the freedom that is available. But the reality is money takes up a lot of our time and our energy and our uh, mental world for most people. Thinking about it, worrying about it. Um, And so the intention is, as I said earlier, to make it part of our mindfulness practice. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. To bring uh, how we spend, bring it really into awareness, how we invest, how we save, as conscious, intentional way of being. Um, and I give this advice and I see myself all the time be unconscious about spending or, but that reminder of like, oh, should pay attention to this. And this teaching of non-attachment. I don't have all the answers at all, um, but I see in my own life trying to find this balance between non-attachment and then when does it become irresponsible? Like I would say my father's relationship, non-attached relationship to money actually ended up being irresponsible, uh, that he, he didn't uh, take the responsibility to save for retirement. And then looking at, at myself of like, oh, I probably have a uh, tendency towards that. How do I find a bit more uh, effort towards responsibility? And uh, without, without it being clinging, but that kind of, uh, the future is uncertain. We don't know how long we're gonna live, but that possibility is that you might live. <laughs> I think for me, this is a big part of it. I've always had this, even though I'm 52, I didn't think I was gonna make it out of my twenties. And so this sort of like, oh shit, I never thought I was going to survive my, uh, you know, reckless, childhood and then uh okay oh shit I, I might actually survive i might actually be 70 i might actually be 80 oh we got to plan for that possibility without postponing happiness so finding that balance of non-attachment but also uh responsible saving and investment <laughs> if you know what, what's the what's the line there was uh, talking to somebody recently who was talking about their parents who are constantly uh, convinced that they're going to uh, be broke any minute now. And, and she said, but the reality is they have millions and millions of dollars, but it doesn't matter. They're constantly live in this scarcity mentality and, and, you know, are always worried, even though like they've got, over $10 million, they're fine. And they're in their 80s, and they're fine. <laughs> like they can't even spend it before they die. There's no way. But it doesn't matter that the fear that they live in around money. So it's not about, you know, how much you have sometimes. It's just about that conditioning.
last thing I'll open up for any questions or comments. Actually, I'll let it go. We have a few minutes left. Questions, comments about money and the Buddha's teachings around money. Laura, go ahead, jump in. You can unmute yourself. Thanks, Noah. Thank you so much for your service. And thank you to everyone against the stream for your service. I didn't realize that money was an issue for me until you brought it up. Um, You're welcome. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and so I was thinking about it and, and I only really discovered uh, your form, you know, uh, Buddhism through you about, uh, I don't know, maybe nine months ago. And um, I had the good fortune of not needing to work at the time. So I was able to really kind of throw myself into this recovery and this Buddhist based recovery. And it was wonderful. But then eventually it came time for me to look for work. And um, I work in healthcare and I work with patients. And I was getting back into the field. And uh, the very first position I got, um, I thought, you know, this is great. I can flex my Buddhist muscles here and I can be my genuine self. And um, three days into my job, um, the the uh, practitioner, the owner of the practice came to me and she was like, you need to tone it down. Um, in so many words, she pretty much was like, stop being you, be more like my miserable quiet staff because you're a distraction. Um, and she said, uh, I was very, very, taken by the, the the words that she used. She said that if I kept up this enthusiasm, it would cause a burnout. And I said, wow, that is a very interesting way to look at it. Thank you so much for your perspective. I will not be back tomorrow. <laughs> and um, so I was kind of like, what the fuck? It's like, I thought I was doing good. Like I had a, a patient come to me who had just gotten like terminal results and she was shaking and crying. And when she left my office, she was laughing so loud that we got in trouble. Like, I thought I was doing good, but apparently it's it's not enough. What do you think? Could everybody hear pretty much in the room? I know it's a little, not that loud in the back, but um, oh, I don't know what I think. Sounds like not the right fit for you. And, uh, you know, Find a realm where you are appreciated for your enthusiasm uh, and that there's, you know, some wisdom for you to say like, oh, this is not the right fit for me. I, you know, I want to work in a realm where actually I'm allowed to be enthusiastic and joyous and engaged with patients and not, uh, you know, whatever, whatever they expected there. So uh, good for you for moving on. Well, thanks. I, I really wasn't fishing, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm really torn now, you know, because I'm kind of like, because I, I do have these, these issues with like, how much is too much? And how do I get my money and still be true to myself and the Buddhist principles? And honestly, it's this, it's, it's a big conundrum, really. You know, one of the, um, things that I feel like, you know, I was talking a little bit of shit about my dad's irresponsible relationship to money. But uh, one of the things that he taught me that I really appreciate, I don't know if this applies to you, 
uh, well or not Laura's, but he, he said early on when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, he said, find something that um, you would like to do and that you would do for free and then see if it can be a livelihood for you. Um, and I think, you know, that's, it's good advice for some, for me, it worked out really well. Cause I was like, oh, I like, I want to help people. I want to be of service. And I'd have these cool, like outreach volunteer jobs and counseling. I want, that's kind of what I wanted to do. And so then I was able to become a therapist and a teacher and do this stuff. And it's like, it's what I would do for free, whether it was a job or not. Now it's not always the right advice because, you know, sometimes you want to be a rock star and you can't, you know, like, it's not always like, it's not so easy to just be like, I'm going to be, you know what I, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to play stadiums. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you know, maybe you can make a living being a, a musician, you know, like, um, but it's not, you know, or an artist. I'm like, you know, all I want to do is make art. And it's like, okay, cool. I hope you can, but it's not always so easy to um, become a successful musician or artist or writer or, you know, some of those things that we love doing, but not so easy to uh, monetize, you know, to actually make a living doing it. So, Thank you, Dallas. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's like a garden. It's like gardening. There is a way to cultivate making money you, you, and, and not to suffer about it, nor to be attached to it. The, the irresponsibility piece is when you have other beings, like children or pets, but especially children. <laughs> so that I understand, but if we plan, just it seems that it's just like gardening. I mean, that's how I look at it. I, I I want tomatoes, right? And and I don't have it. So I I cultivate them. And I know that if I keep doing this thing, that down the road these things are gonna blossom and grow. I, I've never had a, a problem with that. I've always been able to manifest, you know, I I followed your father, right? So and then Ramdas and all that, but I really do and and they both broke. and they both died broke. Right, and that's okay though. But unless somebody had to take care, of, they left bills. Yeah, well, they were they, they you know those guys were fortunate because they were famous people who you know people were like, well, okay, we'll support you. And Wayne Dyer was like, oh, Ramdas have this house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was like those guys were able to be cared for in a way that's probably not what's going to happen for the rest of us, uh, you know, where it's like, you know, that sort of spiritual teacher, new age guy who's like, I'm just going to manifest it. Like, okay, let's see, you know, like, oh, you, okay, I guess you did manifest it by having other people, you know, support you at the end of your life. Um, I guess that's a, you know, receiving is a, a good thing too, but um there is some irres I feel like there's some irresponsibility in those in those models of those guys. You know. Personally. I mean, I think when kids, you, you raise your kids to a point where they need to be self-sufficient. Yeah. And then you manifest it your own way. 
and for music, right, we, we play, you have to love music, whether it's a small group of people. And then suddenly you're like, wow, thank you. You guys love what I'm doing. That's such a blessing. That's the real magic. I, I know these people and some of them, and, and they're humble, actually, really deep inside. But they have their weakness. Anyway, whatever. Our attachments, that's the thing. The attachment is what makes me suffer. That's why I'm practicing this. Well, we're a little bit over time, so we'll leave it there for tonight. Um, you know, against the stream, we're, we're talking about money and Buddhism and generosity. And um, I've been doing this class for... Uh, I guess about 18 years on Monday nights. And in Los Angeles, we've had a meditation center for just about that whole time. I think it's like 15 or 16 years. And uh, we've never charged anybody for coming to class. And it's all been done based on the generosity of people who show up and saying like, I want this to exist. And I'm gonna freely give some of my uh, hard earned money because I like this thing. And it's such a beautiful, radical, non-capitalist thing that we're doing where, and the fact that it's, you know, continues to be supported. Here we are, you know, uh, you know, 18 years later, still showing up on Monday nights, meditating with all of the folks. Now we have the, you know, out of town people that get to join us. It's, it's awesome. So that is my pitch for your generosity. Uh, there's, uh, uh, Sebastian will be at the desk there's um, a couple ways to donate. You can give cash into the bowl. If you're at home, you can do, um, you know, the Venmo or PayPal link is there in the chat. Uh, if you're here, if you want to donate with a credit card or log on to Venmo, thank you. And be, you know, be generous as you can. And thank you for your generosity in advance. We'll leave it there. Last piece is that there is a retreat coming up, three-day retreat in the end of the month. It's already May. It's May Day. It's, oh, I should have talked about communism. It's May Day. Should have talked about International Workers Day. Um, so there's a retreat, three-day retreat, Memorial Day weekend. Um, there's about 30 people registered so far. We are. We did the math today. We're about ten thousand dollars short on securing the venue, or like actually, like you know, meeting the direct cost of the venue. So uh, hopefully like, you know, 10 or 15 more people will join us so that we can actually not lose money on the retreat. And that's the way that we do this thing is we try to charge so we break even so that it doesn't, you know, we don't need to make a bunch of money on it, but we need to not lose a bunch of money on it. So um, if you have extra money and you wanna donate it to help support that, please do. If you're thinking about coming register so that we know that there's enough people coming to support it. We won't cancel it anyways. We'll just take the loss if we have the loss, but hopefully we won't have a loss on it. So May 27th through 2030th or whatever that, 26th through 29th, 26th through 29th. Come to retreat. Somebody said communism next week. <laughs> May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all beings. May each one of us get as free as possible, and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.